from Kurtco Media. At the very core of what I developed as a business model and is now my goal in life is to document these cars for all time. That was the voice of Scott Williamson, our guest today on Cars That Matter. This is Cars That Matter. This is Robert Ross, and welcome to Cars That Matter. I have a very special guest today, because this is a very special friend, Scott Williamson. Welcome to our show. Thank you, Robert. What a joy to be with you. It's been so long, and I don't get out much these days. Scott, I don't think any of us get out much these days, but so close and yet so far. I'm up here in L.A., and you're down in Santa Ana, Orange County, where Photo Design Studios is located. That's really what we're going to talk about today. Not only the great photography that you do, but our long history of working together and, of course, the friendship that revolves around so many things automotive. Scott, you and I met about 20 years ago when I just joined Rob Report, and we had grand visions of bringing in the best car photographer that we knew. In some rather serendipitous way, you and I got in touch. Why don't you tell me about that? That is a good story. (laughs) As our entire friendship grew to be filled with great stories, It had been brought to my attention that Bill Curtis had acquired the Rob Report from its original Boston founders and was moving the publication out here to California, specifically to Malibu. I had also been informed that it was his choice to increase his coverage and exposure to the automotive hobbies and the automotive collector marketplace. As I read that, I said, that's an opportunity. So I went to the Kurt Co. website to see who I should be talking to to get involved. And there were these photos of this guy and that guy. And I come to your photo and it just glowed. And I went, that's the guy I want to talk to. Of course, I believe your title was Senior VP of Creative Design, something like that. So I knew you were the right guy to talk to. And all I did was pick up the phone, got through to the receptionist, said, I'd like to speak to Robert Ross, please. She said, one moment. She put me through. You answered and said, Robert Ross. And I said, Robert, I'm Scott Williamson from Photo Design Studios. I think you and I should meet. Isn't it great how that happens? Nobody picks up the phone anymore, which is probably why so many fantastic opportunities are actually missed. We became fast friends because a mutual love of cars brings so many people together. But I really didn't have a clue of exactly how good you were. If this sounds like an encomium to Scott Williamson, it is, because I really regard you as probably the most accomplished automotive studio photographer in the world. We encourage our listeners to go to your website, photodesignstudios.com. That's all one word, photodesignstudios.com. And have a look at the incredible portfolio of work that you've put together. Scott, I really don't know anyone who has had more significant automobiles in their studio to photograph than have you. To talk about your work is really to go through the Louvre Museum of Automotive History. People talk about photographers of the stars. Well, you're really the photographer of the cars, which are the stars in some of the most important collections in the world. What a career that has been. How do you get started in photography? The connections don't even seem to fit till you can pull away from it and see how the puzzle pieces eventually make a picture. 
When I was 18, I had a unique opportunity to join and become a part of the United States Antarctic Research Program and went for two years on a tour of duty to the South Pole. Not many cars there, Scott. No, <laughs> some great snowmobiles and snow tracks and airplanes with rocket boosters and skis. And Little did I know what I was about to be exposed to would become the stepping stones, the dominoes to a series of opportunities that would present themselves to me throughout my life, and those dominoes would lead me to what became my career. My father gave me a gift of a camera, and he said, son, you're going to see some magnificent things. Take all the pictures you can so you can share them with the family and the world. I wasn't going to the Antarctic to be a photographer. I was just part of a general team. But while there, anywhere you looked was a magnificent sight, and the people that I met were some of the most stimulating and inspiring people that at age 18, I was in awe of everything that was occurring to me. Everywhere I pointed my camera was a beautiful shot. So it gave me the feeling that I couldn't take a bad picture, <laughs> but it did give me a feel for the joy of taking pictures that could possibly tell a story. After that experience wound up, I came back to the United States after traveling throughout several other countries and became a little bit of a roustabout and wanted to, well, those dominoes of fate, I believe, were leading me to become a nature photographer, working for maybe National Geographic or Sierra Highways or something. I started traveling around, taking pictures of nature and nature's beauty and following the inspiration of people like Ansel Adams and Elliot Porter and Ernst Haas. I was sure that was what was going to be my destiny. But eventually, it started to appear that this wasn't going to give me a financial living that I wanted. And maybe that's important, maybe that's not. But at the time, I said, how can I bridge this out? And at that moment, I was giving an exhibit at a museum in Fullerton, California. And it was sort of at the peak of my nature, I call it my nature boy period, my nature boy phase. So with dewy ferns and penguins and waterfalls. I gave what I thought was a pretty fair exhibit of my work to that moment. As it happens, again, fate making its appearance, an art director for a local advertising agency went to that exhibit and was looking for something fresh, something new for a client they had. The client was Sunworld Growers. They were like a sunkist, and they were a large producer of crops around California, oranges, grapes, cherries, you name it. And they wanted a campaign that would make their produce look like Ansel Adams had photographed it in Yosemite. This art director saw my work and said, I think you're my guy. And I was hired. I was brought in. I showed a portfolio. I was hired. I didn't even know what a commercial photographer would make. And I said, great. I'd love to work on this job. What does it pay? And he said, how does $800 a day plus all your expenses sound? And I went, okay. And that was the start of taking me out of Nature Boy and into commercial. And I said, man, I worked on that campaign for over a year and the money just had me hook, line and sinker. And I said, that's what I'm going to do. So goodbye, Nature Boy. Hello, commercial photographer. Only, Robert, I had no practical experience 
I'd never been to school. I had never interned or assisted anybody. All my photographic knowledge was self-taught or acquired by reading Kodak manuals and studying the books of the great photographers of our era. I've always been one to believe that you get your best training on the job. Clearly, you gave yourself a PhD in photography. I often say to interns that I now bring on board to my studio that sometimes it's not necessary to reinvent the wheel all the time. There are certain truths in knowledge that if you can just acquire them in an easy way, you don't have to come up with everything for the first time on your own. But I fought that battle. And little by little, my experience in the commercial world increased. I started getting jobs for annual reports, corporate brochures, shooting products in people's facilities. At that time, I was living in Orange County. That's pretty much my home base. It was booming. It was the mid-70s. Orange County was alive with business. Throw a rock anywhere and you would find some work. And I went into it with one basic policy where if everybody said, well, you don't really have any experience with this exact product line. And I went, here's my deal. Hire me. I'll do my best work for you. And if you don't like what I do, you don't have to pay me. No harm, no foul. And that got me in the door of a lot of agencies and built a portfolio. And I'm proud to say I never once didn't get paid. But tell me, how do you get from produce and consumables to automobiles? As my career in commercial photography started started to accelerate and I wanted to fine tune some sort of specialty that would take me to the highest levels of this occupation that I had decided to be my life's work. I said, I've got to start photographing things I'm passionate about. And that brings me to what I grew up with, automobiles. Cars were a part of your family. And I know you and your dad go back to <laughs> your beginning. You were a little boy and you were turned on to cars at a young age because your dad was fully immersed in them. I wasn't seeing it at the beginning, but it was clear that Destiny had put the largest guidepost in front of me that automobiles, cars, and the fascination and the passion for everything that rolls was in my blood. That's where I had to turn for my next step into a full-blown career. And my father, who I adore, and he's just a rock star in the world of automotive design and industrial design, has had a long, long, lustrous career in that world. And he taught me from the age of a young boy. Among other things, he was a Concorde Elegance judge, and he used to teach me how to see a car. And I didn't even know how significant that was. He would just be teaching me about passion of all things aesthetically beautiful. But why? Why are they beautiful? Well, there are certain truths in design that prevail throughout all things. And if you apply it to automotive design, those truths are the same. You just have to open your eyes and see it. And he taught me how to see it and why this car is a good one and that one not so good and why this car will live forever as a beautiful shape, a beautiful creation. And this one, not so much. Yesterday's news. Isn't that a fact? Boy, we have certainly had decades of experience with sorting the sheep from the goats, as it were. You had an awful lot of beautiful cars roll into your studio. Tell us a story about your dad and the Mira because I know that's a conversation you and I have had before. You've probably photographed about three or four Miras, Scott, some really important ones, but you got a dose of the Lamborghini Mira when you're a youngster. My father's career in automobiles goes way back to his early days working at McCulloch. My grandfather was a vice president of Garrett Air Research. They made intercoolers for aircraft engines during the war, and my grandfather called his friend at McCulloch, this is all near LAX, 
and got my father a job in the modeling shop there where they worked on prototyping all manner of things. But my father was put into the automotive prototyping shop and worked on a vehicle called the Paxton, which was to be a steam-powered project with Abner Doble. He went from that to working with designers throughout California, Charles Eames. He worked on the 1964 World's Fair, the Mathematica exhibit at the Museum of Science and Industry. Now, eventually, Dad, throughout all this time, was always working with automobile projects in connection with his industrial design capabilities. Through his unique relationship with designers throughout California, one of his customers, a designer locally named Robert Miles Runyon. Sure, he was a big deal in advertising design back in the 70s and 80s. He was a big deal. Just ask him. (laughs) He had an ego that wouldn't fit through the door. And he wanted a car that would fit his ego. He wanted to be different from all the other guys on the boulevard. At that time, my father and he had a working relationship and he gave my father a project to search the world over and find what could be the great car of the moment, something that would set him apart from his pals. And dad was doing that and they had sort of fine-tuned their search between a Lusso or a 275 GTB. And they were about to make that acquisition when my dad saw the debut of the Mura at the 66 Geneva Auto Show. And he said, that's the car. That's the one we need to get. So they contacted Bob Estes. That's right. He was the West Coast importer for Lamborghini because that's where I saw my first Mira when I was about 10 years old. <laughs> and Robert, I know you have a soft spot in your heart for all things Lamborghini and are a consummate expert uh, with that brand. So a Mira was acquired. It was the first Mira on the West Coast. It was car number 41, serial number 3066. It was a P400, very early car. Runyon loved it. It was right, but he took it out and started racing it around town, put quite a few dents in it, and then said, you know, Jerry, I love the car and it's great and it's unique, but now that I've dented it and beat it up a little, how about you not only fix it, but fix it up, make it into something unique for me. Now, this was 1967 and customizing cars of that nature really was not a thing as it is today, but dad took on that challenge. He tore the mirror apart to the ground, every nut, every bolt, the engine, the interior, and he recreated a Lamborghini Mira and brought it to a vision of his own, the way Lamborghini, he felt, should have built the car. When it was finished and you stepped away from it, you almost couldn't tell that anything had been done until you started examining its details. And if Lamborghini, with its design of the Mira, Gandini is just one of the greats. I think that Mira goes down in history as one of the great cars of all time. But just don't look too close at the Italian build quality of that day. We will definitely not go there, as they say, because anybody who's unscrewed any of those old jalopies knows that they were very frequently not all they were cracked up to be. So he did recreate that car and that exposure to that process And dad showing me every step of the way why this is right and why this is wrong. And then one of the most thrilling things ever was to be taken to school in that mirror with my dad driving me to Paul Revere Junior High and dropping me off and having all the kids just drool with envy as I popped out of this magnificent world-class supercar, the world's first supercar. Isn't that a fact? What color was it, Scott? It was that verde green. The chartreuse green. Which was straight out of the Fiat color guide. What a great way to get indoctrinated to great cars. We'll be right back in just a moment here on Cars That Matter. 
On Medicine, We're Still Practicing, join Dr. Stephen Tabak and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on the pulse of healthcare in the modern world. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Produced by Kurt Co. Media. We're back with Scott Williamson. When you got into cars heavily, you actually built a studio dedicated to them. So you're one of the few photographers I know who owns a studio that is specifically purpose-built for automobiles. Give our listeners kind of a grand tour, a narrative when a car comes in. When the point of my career working in the automotive field got to where if I really wanted to accelerate my stature in the automotive photography community, I was going to have to get serious. And that meant getting a studio. If you're going to shoot cars, you either are going to be a location photographer and specialize in that, or you're going to be a studio photographer. Some guys are both, but I chose to become and work towards becoming a studio automotive specialist. And I was working mostly in the aftermarket industry, so I had a pretty good idea what I would need in a studio to meet the needs of that current client and beyond. First and foremost, if you're going to run an automotive studio, you need a big space. The term in the biz is throw distance. The vehicle looks the way it looks based on the distance between the camera and the vehicle. And then you manipulate that with your choice of lens. But you can't manipulate it if you can't control the distance. So first and foremost, you need a big space where you can get back inside from the vehicle. So in late 83, I started searching for a space, finally found one here in Santa Ana, California, right near John Wayne Airport, and biting my lip and wondering if I could ever do it, I put down the money, signed the lease, and got a big empty building. And I said, this is where I'm going to build my studio. My whole reason for doing it was to photograph cars. So I had to design a space that would accomplish that goal. The trouble is, Robert, I never worked for anybody. I never interned for a car photographer. I didn't know what I didn't know. So I just imagined what I wanted it to be. And logical minds think alike. And there's only so many ways you can invent the wheel. And I just created a space that would accomplish what I felt I wanted to see in sheet metal because when you photograph a car, you are not only shooting the car, but you're shooting all things that the car reflects back to you. And it's a combination. So a black car is a big black mirror. Correct. Not only do you have to capture the shape of the actual black fender, but also the reflection of the light that that black fender has on it. And you've got to get both those ingredients right or the photo doesn't work. So I knew I wanted a large seamless stage a cove and I built a three wall. I wanted a large flying light panel. And this is a key difference between my studio and most is that I chose to light with all reflected light, not transmitted light. If you go into most car studios in the world, they usually hang or fly a giant softbox over the car. Sure, we've all seen those as a 30-foot-long monster with diffuse, luminous white light coming out of the top. And it works. You put this giant light source over the car and you have lit the car. But that doesn't mean you've lit the car correctly. I believe that cars look so beautiful when they're out on the high desert and the sun has just gone behind the mountain and you get that beautiful golden light, that magic moment where the light is soft and it transitions over the entire sky and falls onto that reflective fender, then comes back to your eye and you have this 
sweet airbrushed appearance with no hot spots, no harshness, and everything just looks its best. I wanted to create that in my studio. And reflective light allowed me to do that by bouncing my light sources off the giant reflective panels of both my flying flat and the seamless side walls. And by combining light around the stage at different levels, I could increase it in the rear or decrease it in the front to any unlimited mixture. And I literally painted with light onto the reflective panels of the car. So automotive photography really does come down to two things. First, knowing how to see the car and knowing what its good angles are, and then lighting those angles so that that best angle can appear in its best form. To see your images, a lot of people imagine, this is airbrushed. Everything here is softened. This has been manipulated. But of course, historically, your photos have been made on film. You've been doing this for a long time, Scott, and your dedication to film, large format film, 4x5 as we know it, and in some cases even larger, 8x10, was really the ultimate technology, some would argue, that has ever existed in capturing images photographically. Photographing cars in the studio is a painstaking and slow process. I know when you're a location photographer, you have all day to set up and then only moments to finally capture your image. So they tend to fire off 50, 60 rolls of film and hundreds of shots and all figure it out all later on the light box when you get it back from the lab. Studio photography to the exact opposite allows you, because you are in full control of your environment and the lighting, you can simply work the shot as long as you want till you have it the way you want it, and then you take the picture. The setup will take forever, but the snapping of the picture doesn't take that long. But to capture it, obviously, before digital even existed, everything was on film. But as I grew my studio, and we opened in 1984 at this location, I knew that I needed to acquire the best equipment in the world and did so with Sinar expert 4x5 and 8x10 view cameras and Hasselblad medium format cameras and Nikon small format cameras. The beauty of that gear, unlike today's digital, a good Hasselblad camera was good 20 years ago and it's good today. It just never gets old. It's like the cars you photograph. They don't get any slower than they were and they don't get any less beautiful than they ever were. That's right. With the right equipment and the time to get it right technically and aesthetically, now it's time to capture the image. And the capture was always on film, large format film. And film is just this marvelous beautiful thing that once you understand how film actually accepts light and captures it on its light-sensitized silver surface, you can affect the way it looks by the way you expose the film, and then you can either process it by the book or you can modify the processing to achieve either more or less contrast. And I followed a game book that was created by Ansel Adams calling Zone System Placement. And though he did it with black and white film, I worked with Kodak on developing films that would allow color transparency film to be exposed and then manipulated in the processing to achieve zonal compression of highlight to shadow ratio. And we became quite expert at that in this studio. So with the soft appearance of reflected light by its very nature and by manipulating the capture onto large format film by, in essence, overexposure and then pull processing, I could compress the zones into something much smoother than it appeared in real life. So not creating something false, just manipulating it so it appeared its very best 
possible way. Scott, you're a scientist and an artist. Really, this is a conflation of both attributes that I think that's sometimes what the best creations achieve. I had no idea that so much technology went into it. I know a lot of time goes into it because any of the photo sessions, you physically had to wait for a lab to process film. So you're basically sitting around kind of killing time for a while, aren't you? To your point about science and aesthetic, I had coined a phrase back in the day and would teach it to my interns, know the science, achieve the art, know the science, achieve the art. And also the time it takes to do this, don't rush it. We had another saying in the studio, pre-touch, don't retouch. Before Photoshop became so prevalent, retouching was an expensive and laborious process of pushing dyes around with a single-haired brush on uh, duplicate transparencies or airbrushing a large print. So if I could get the photo as correct as possible right out of the lab, then the client was all the better for it. And so was my art. If I knew the science, I would achieve the art. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Welcome to Life Done Better. Listen to the weekly episodes where supermodel and health coach Jill DeYoung talks to some of the world's most inspiring women in health and wellness. It's the place for all the unicorns who strive to create a life on their own terms. Join us to explore, discover, and create a life done better together. Listen and subscribe from Kurt Co. Media, media for your mind. Welcome back to Cars That Matter. What happened when digital came around and clobbered you on the head? Are you able to use film any longer, Scott? I resisted that that change. Nobody likes change. I spent my entire career becoming the best I could be with the tools that I perfected. Why would I want that to change? But I was forced to take my head out of the proverbial sand and wake up because one day I was able to buy the film, bring the film back to the studio put it in my camera and shoot it, but I couldn't take it to the lab. Because the lab was gone. In Orange County, in the heyday of the 80s, there were 30 pro labs processing out all day, every day, many of them 24-7. And by the time it became obvious that film was not going to be possible for processing anymore, there was only one lab left. The problem with film processing came down to this one basic point. You can buy the film, you can shoot the film exactly the way I always have, but you only have one shot at running it through the soup. It was called seasoning. Chemicals in the processing machine were seasoned by the amount of film that went through it. It would remove bromides from the factory film and it would season the actual chemistry. And that allowed the lab to control it to an infinitely correct degree. When the simple fact of the amount of film going through wasn't keeping the chemistry seasoned, it wasn't predictable what would come out, what we call dry to dry. And once the film comes out of processing wrong, you can't fix it. So from a professional point of view, I can't shoot a job, spend all my time and effort shooting a job if I can't guarantee the end result. I was shooting a beautiful Mercer raceabout in the studio and the film was coming back from the lab murky and off color. I was on the phone with the processing department and what's going on? And they said, we're trying our best. We just can't get the levels right and the pH is off. I didn't care about any of that. All I knew is I had a job to shoot and a job to deliver to the customer. And I said, well, 
I looked at my assistant and my assistant said, well, I have a digital camera in my grip bag. You want to use it? And unfortunately, that was a pivotal moment. Again, a moment of destiny where kicking and screaming, I had to put my film box aside and hook up a digital camera and figure out how to make digital captures look the same as my film captures. It was a bit of a learning curve, but I would be untrue if I didn't say the digital cameras today are so good that I now got it dialed in to the point where you can't tell the difference between my digital captures and my film captures. And though I didn't want to go into this arena of the digital world, I have done so because business forced me to. And now the workflow is far faster because I can see results much quicker. There is one major downside to this discussion, though, and I'd be remiss if I didn't mention it. Well, do tell. For 30 years, I shot beautiful, large format film on all these incredible cars that I've been so blessed and fortunate to have come to my studio for capture. And I have those entire, very detailed portfolios on file in original film plates. Those are forever. Film is forever. If you have shot it right, processed it right, and now you store it correctly in an archival way, that film will be there forever. When you do a digital capture, you do not have that analog piece of historical document. It's simply bits and bytes, zeros and ones existing on some hard drive or memory bank somewhere on a server, on your desk or in the cloud, wherever. But if those things fail, that's gone. And for the longest time, even courts of law would not allow digital photography because you never knew if it was manipulated or not. There was no way to tell. I know that if I pull out a piece of film of, say, a, an early Duesenberg that I have documented, I can guarantee you exactly what you see on my film is exactly what that car was on that day. No manipulation and no distortion of the truth. It is the real deal. And that has value. That has historical, authenticative value. You talked about something there, about that Duesenberg, for instance, and how it really becomes an archival record of the car on that day at that point in time. Your photographs are beautiful, the cars are beautiful, but the purpose of these portfolios, when you shoot a full portfolio of an automobile, in a lot of ways, that's sort of the only proof and record of that car into eternity because, let's face it, the car might not continue to exist. And that statement, Robert, it's at the very core of what I developed as a business model and is now my goal in life is to document these cars for all time and for the owners. Scott and I had so much more to discuss, so we're going to continue our deep dive into even more subjects next time on Cars That Matter, where we continue to talk about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. This episode of Cars That Matter was hosted by Robert Ross, produced by Chris Porter. Edited by Chris Porter. Theme song by Celeste and Eric Dick. Additional music and sound by Chris Porter. Please like, subscribe, and share this podcast. I'm Robert Ross. Thanks for listening. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind.